Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, PulpCon guest of honor David Saunders talks about his father, pulp artist Norman Saunders. It was recorded in 2007 at PulpCon 36 in Dayton, Ohio. My dad was Norm Saunders. It was a, a lot of fun, and if he were here now, he'd be 100 years old. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, so when I was born, you know, uh, I was born in 54, and he, he would say, well, uh, I was born in 1907. And it really sounded old. We could barely find pennies from 1907. At that time. <laughs> and uh, it seemed like, you know, way before Charlie Chaplin and all that stuff. And I was like, uh, he actually helped out in the projection of the birth of the nation um, in his town when he was a, a kid. But anyway, uh, it was, uh, he's a really great guy. And uh, I'm really glad to be here for you guys. So. Uh, I brought slides um, to give you an idea of who he was, and also, um, um, you know, what uh, his collection was that he had afterwards. And a lot of people ask me about what, what paintings we left with. Um, so let's get started. Back up 
<laughs> and uh, this is a little known thing that did uh, covers for other magazines while I was working at Fawcett's. And uh, this is uh, the Elks, like the club, you know, the Elks Club. And they put out a, a monthly magazine uh, up until the 60s, I think. And uh, it's one of his early old covers. And he's, he uh, came to New York in 1934 and started uh, Stalingrad. Uh, because out at Fawcett's, he, he worked and competed with uh, the Rosens. And um, uh, you know, often he got better, more assignments more frequently and stuff. And, he, and then uh, the Rosens worked for Delcourt in New York. And so he just said, well, if I can beat Rosen and Fawcett's and Delacorte, I should just go to New York and keep working with the, the big people. And um, so he went to New York and uh, just kept making uh, really, within five months, he was uh, had all the work he could possibly do. He was very, very happy um, working as an illustrator in the city. And, and we don't have any of the original uh, saucies, so these are just um, a representative sampling of the proof sheets that he, he kept. But uh, we don't have the names. And uh, I'm just speeding this along. So after that, you know, he, as you guys all know, he got lots and lots of really great covers before the war. And these are uh, Ace publications. At the same time, he was studying with um, Harvey Dunn, who is basically uh, the protege of um, Howard Pyle. And uh, therefore, NCY. And um, Harvey Dunn probably had the best um, school in America at that time for um, uh, what they called commercial art at the time. Uh, and it was at the Grand Central uh, School of Art. And he studied with him uh, in the evenings for four years. And uh, one of the assignments that Harvey Dunn gave him was to. Um, just take uh, whatever magazine, like in those days it was Click, um, and uh, I think Pick was another one. And it would be what in the, my lifetime was the Life magazine type magazine that just filled with fun photographs that would look like kind of a newsreel thing. And just um, draw everything that's in there just to give yourself good practice. So these are beautiful sketches that Dad did. You can see the little date on it, um, December 29th. 1941, and it was just, uh, he would go from the front to the back of uh, every magazine drawing like that, and uh, he just gave himself an assignment that he would do it and um, for a solid year, and uh, just uh, as part of another exercise that he was doing. So these are just, uh, if we, you know, if you found an old copy of uh, the magazine from June 9th, those would be all the pictures that he saw, like either in the newspaper or in some sort of photo journal. And he thought that this was uh, something that just really, really helped him a whole lot. So this is the kind of challenges that um, a really great artist like Harvey Dunn uh, was passing on to other people to help them to just become, you know, to get in contact with themselves and be more uh, inspired and be able to just really do good work. So. Uh, these have never been seen and stuff, but in uh, 42, uh, he was in the Army, and uh, he was 36 years old, but uh, they actually uh, expanded the draft um, from, I think, 17 years old to 36, 
um, as part of the uh, mobilization. And uh, he was, everybody was very happy to go, basically, as far as my father's experience was. And um, he was born, and he was, because uh, of his age, I guess, they made him a um, prison guard for Nazi um, prisoners uh, from Europe. And uh, he was working in a, you know, um, destination unknown kind of prison camp, but it was in Louisiana. And um, he was a master sergeant. And there are all these great uh, photos of him um, with a Thompson submachine gun and a master sergeant and a jacket. And he was uh, Sergeant Saunders. And uh, in the uh, 1960s, it was a lot of fun uh, watching combat with Sergeant Saunders. And, uh, he would tell everyone in the neighborhood that those were all stories of his exploits. <laughs> and he got the photographs to prove it. And, uh, there's pictures of him standing around with all these Nazis. And uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. But uh, nevertheless, he thought it was kind of boring. And, um, so he finally, he's told, Amber, he always said that he, he gave some guy in the army um, a case of whiskey and uh, to get transferred to um, something more interesting. And um, they trained him in camouflage painting and he was uh, shipped to uh, China and worked with uh, the Lido Burma Road uh, going you know, from uh, Assam, India, through Burma, North Burma, which was still uh, under, um, seized by the Japanese, and then up into the southwestern um, China, up to the Yangtze and the uh, Yunnan province, to bring gasoline and everything else they could possibly give to the Chinese army, because the Japanese had basically um, surrounded China's all of its ports, and so China was basically uh, being uh, you know, starved and had been occupied by the Japanese, I think, for more than a decade at that point. Um, so the Americans did this incredible thing of building the, the Burma Road, which originally um, only went to Burma, but they had to go basically through the Himalayas, I think, um, to get into um, China through a new, another route coming through, basically using Calcutta as a, as a port. Anyway, so he worked for um, two and a half years in China and did the most incredible watercolors, and they didn't really need them. Um, once they defeated the Japanese uh, in Burma, and drove them south to Rangoon, there was a um, no more need for uh, bombing uh, protection with camouflage. So these, this is a gasoline pipeline, those would be uh, cans in the back and the pipes and stuff. And they would just fill up you know, reservoirs to get the gas pipe through the uh, Himalayan mountains. And um, they didn't need the camouflage because there was no more bombing from the Japanese. So we had air superiority or whatever. And uh, so his actual, um, Officers in charge of General Pike, um, who was in charge of the Lido Burma Road. Uh, Dad got a job working for Life Magazine to do uh, illustrations of the um, of the experience for the Army Corps of Engineers, and um, so they just said go to it, and so he went to it, and so for the next two and a half years he was just a kind of a loose uh, cannon with uh, uh, credentials and to explore China and. Uh, paint whatever he saw and recorded. And um, these are just incredible pictures. That's Chiang Kai-shek up there instead of Buddha. And uh, that's like some beautiful old temple that was just turned into a, um, I think it's a um, uh, Red Cross um, sort of education thing for Chinese soldiers. 
So this is just uh, for my father. He considered these the most important artworks he ever did in his life. And um, it's kind of a funny thing in terms of uh, all of his training up until this point. He had a lot of technical knowledge because of the um, um, work for modern mechanics, and he had great, uh, you know, action, adventure, and sexual stuff that he could uh, bring into it. And from working with the pulps, as, as a successful guy doing that, and um, but it just made him just go wild with the freedom of being able to really explore another country. Um, his own father, uh, oddly enough, fought with um, uh, General Pershing. Um, in um, the Spanish-American War, and um, went to the Philippines and was uh, shot um, by a Muslim sniper, and uh, had opium for the rest of his life in order to uh, uh, survive the pain, supposedly. And so dad had this uh, incredible uh, father to live up to, and so when he was in China, he was finally living up to these uh, incredible fables of uh, his own father, um, who eventually wound up as a uh, uh, trapper in northern Minnesota, where dad was born. So for him to finally uh, one-up his father to this way was something, um, I think, spectacular for him emotionally. And uh, he created these great things. Um, Life Magazine backed out of the story, and um, uh, it was basically said that once the uh, uh, war got to a certain point, um, there was no longer really a propaganda machine at work trying to say um, how great China is and we all have to stand behind China. And up until that point, it was a kind of a big propaganda issue to get Americans to uh, okay the idea of um, sending so much of our uh, sort of like a Marshall Plan thing just to China when they themselves were a questionable nation uh, and hadn't quite gotten their act together to, to, to end. Immediately after we pulled out, uh, the communists, you know, basically took over immediately, um, and the nation sort of collapsed in a, in a sense in terms of uh, this fledgling concepts of democracy. But anyway, Dad was having a ball at this point. He came back to America and uh, tried to get his act back together again and rethink of himself as a um, illustrator. But he did actually have uh, about eight articles published of his China sketches. Um, in um, like uh, slick magazines during the war. So all of the, the life magazine one fell apart. He kept actually doing lots of illustrations um, uh, for different human interest magazines or whatever you call it. And it was fun because he actually illustrated them and wrote them also. So it's like Sergeant Swan is reporting from India or something like that. And there, it's, it's kind of unique in the sense of most of the other uh, Pulp illustrators had nothing remotely like that in their experience, you know. Um, you know, and so the war brought uh, interesting opportunities to my father, and uh, he loved being able to write and invent his own stuff. So he came back, and um, uh, you know, everything was in jungle, obviously, trying to figure out where the publishing industry was going and, and how he would fit into it or something, and. Uh, you know, it's just everybody had to rethink their old um, career expectations. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he, he decided that he was going to really make uh, I can't think of that guy. 
So he kept working uh, at uh, a lot of different houses, and everybody else was, it, it was, the industry was in disarray, let's say, basically. Um, but he found himself in a funny position because uh, he's very practical and uh, very good and uh, charged as much as everybody else, which was like a hundred bucks um, for a cover. And um, everybody still was thinking he was gonna go from there into something more interesting. But, uh, so they were kind of ready, willing to buy time. But in the meantime, he got a lot of assignments, um, hundreds and hundreds of assignments, uh, in 48, 49, 50, 51 from the polls. And so he kind of uh, was making much more money than he never made before during the, the demise of the industry. Uh, he said that a lot of the publishers just felt that, um, uh, you know, they can't pay anything, they're going out of business, they had complete leverage over the artists at that point, and they could actually lower the prices and say, well, I'm sorry, you know, but all we pay is 90 bucks or something. Um, and so the artists would have to accept it, basically. And at that point, when my father came back from the war, um, they would say, well, we, you know, at 90 bucks, we can get him, we'd rather have him than other people. And so he actually got like, way too much work. And um, um, so for popular, he was just working endlessly, but at the same time, he was doing um, paperbacks and um, comic books at that same era, because the publishers were all the same guys trying to figure out, oops, oh, I missed that one, I'm sorry. What's the right format that they can be uh, making a fortune off of? This one should look familiar to Mark. This one I've never even seen. And if anyone has ever seen this, I'd love to know where it was uh, published. That's a star question. So uh, popular uh, did some uh, you know, cost-cutting measures or something, and they were trying to tell all their uh, tax people that we have um, X amount of money invested in properties like our printing presses and stuff, and they're devalued every year because they go through the uh, usage and stuff, so we're devaluing our property and stuff. And they said, well, what is this property called, you know, art that you've got? And they said, oh, well, we've got closet, you know, rooms full of paintings. And so this is something we've invested in. And so they looked at it and said, no, I'm sorry, that won't work that way. You're gonna, you're gonna be disallowed that. How long have you been taking this deduction? And um, so then their uh, people doing uh, accounting for them tried to recalculate that and say, well, wait a minute. Now maybe what it is is um, we, we, were, uh, we didn't really buy these paintings. Maybe they were only lent to us by one-time use. It's actually the artists uh, should be paying new sales tax on these paintings. Um, yeah, that's the way it works. So that should be the deal. Go after the artists. And um, the IRS didn't really buy it. And um, they said, well, okay, well, we have to figure this out. So what is this art in relation to popular? And they go, I don't know. We have no idea. In fact, we want it out of here. And so my dad and uh, Ralph DeSoto and the other um, I'm sure Lillis, Richard Lillis, the other artists that were working with Popular at that time, Cherryaka, they got calls saying, um, get the hell down here, pick up your paintings, they're way overdue, I don't know why you didn't pick them up. And it's completely the fiction. But uh, the artists were like, oh, well, you know, we're busy, maybe we'll get them next week or something. And there was such a negative energy, actually, because the industry was collapsing and the artists had received so little money, and 
um, so little respect in a lot of ways that a lot of them just said, you know what, screw you, you didn't help me, why should I help you, kind of thing. And they just didn't go down. And, um, oh. But Dad always felt that, um, and even after this, I mean, he continued to work for even worse and worse and worse and worse conditions to try and make a living. But he always said that, you know, the, the key to success, he had a couple of keys to success, but one of them was um, do the very, very, very best you could possibly do, and don't even think about the money, and uh, overdo it, and you'll just blow their minds, and they'll think in the future, you know, why should I call anyone else? I'll call Warren. Um, and that that would be at least a way to guarantee, like, continued employment. So these paintings that are all original pulps that I've been showing now, these are ones that Popular gave them back um, probably in 1953, I think. So these were the paintings that we had as a kid uh, in our house when I was growing up. And um, uh, to me, they were just a dream come true. You know, I just thought my dad was uh, something super special. Especially this one, I always love this one. And it's just such a crazy composition. You know? I don't know, you know, I never knew like how the hell he could figure all these things out. But he had models coming in, but how would he actually get this, you know, crashed uh, scene down the, at the ferry or something, ferry terminal. And, um, but he actually would go and take a pen and pencil and draw everything um, obsessively. So there are drawings of the dead end sign, the stop sign, the crashed car, a close up of the steering axle, how it works, a close up of every single detail, the door, the handles. And, but I don't know still how he painted it so that they look so uh, realistic. They all seem to exist within a kind of a form, a space and stuff. So I was, and then you can see like her knee and her foot, it's reflected in the moisture on the uh, sidewalk. I mean, I don't know how, because he couldn't get the model wet in a dress down on the street, you know, so. But somehow he could just, um, he said like, well, he was beginning to paint and then he would get into a <coughs> trance and uh, he was a terrific chain smoker and, um, and a heavy drinker. But when he would um, paint, uh, was the only time ever that he would not, you know, uh, smoke or drink. And so he would get into a, a painting rhythm or something and you could go up to him and say, Dad, it's a phone call. And he, he, it was like you're talking to uh, uh, Mortimer Spur. I mean, he was uh, without uh, <laughs> Mr. Bergen around. It was just, he was just in an inanimate thing, just working, wouldn't answer you. And um, he would say, oh, well, I have to come up for, for air every now and then. And uh, so he'd get up and relax and walk around. And, uh, but for like an hour, he wouldn't smoke talk or anything. He would just be in a trance working. And um, he said that um, every single artist makes a whole lot of mistakes and a lot of uh, lucky mistakes. But the difference between a good artist and a bad artist is that a good artist can see when he's made a lucky mistake and has sense enough to leave it alone. And um, I kind of think that along with the idea of him being in a trance was somehow how he was able to convey such interesting and convincing illusionism in his paintings that are really coming from his imagination, albeit with pencil sketches of the ingredients, but somehow they seem to exist as objects. Like you can see in that tire, that the white wall on the side is, again, it's reflected somehow in the, uh, the moist sidewalk, but just enough to a degree that it's genuinely illusionistic. 
stuff. He just did the sketches. Right, it's just a pencil sketch. Yeah, showing lighting his head. Right, right. And so it's a kind of a, a, a phenomenal imagination, but he would just splash it out and keep splashing it out until it sort of gave us a convincing sense of uh, believability or something. It's quite um, impressive, you know, if you put on a magnifying glass and look closely at like the guy's knuckles and stuff, it's a very strange, uh, very uh, uh, beautiful illusionism that he creates. It's obviously the splash on um, like a, uh, you know, my father obviously loved uh, John Singer Sargent a tremendous amount, and um, Joseph Christian Landecker, and those two guys between them really created a kind of a, uh, it, it, it really looks like the famous uh, Franz Halls, basically, um, <coughs> and it's a particular type of painting that those three names together are just, they define the kind of painting that's spectacular. And my dad is just definitely painting along using the way in which they manipulate paint. That's his actual hand. This one you'd never see. Uh, it's cropped on the cover um, of the, uh, is it Detective Tales, I think? And um, there's a guy with a knife reflected in her green sunglasses. A very ghoulish, mean guy, but when you, you just see your tight face on the cover, it's really incredible to see this beautiful, big um, composition of a big naked girl with a red background. And a great suit. Yeah. <laughs> but the, I guess they were afraid you wouldn't catch the eyeballs of the little guy there, so they cropped it in real close so that you can actually see on the cover. These are, these are the more eerie ones I put in also. I don't feel a pulse. Yeah. Now, he from by himself? Yeah. No, he always came up with it himself. And, uh, they're very strange, but it's like this. For this one, I've seen the sketches, you know, and he was at looking at the steam shovel. He drew it from like five different positions and thinking, like, what's going on? What's kind of interesting or something? And, one of the sketches shows it exactly from this position, but um, he's just developing ideas and bringing them in. Uh, every different uh, publisher, every different art director, and every different artist all had their own bizarre creative uh, relationships together, interpersonal. But um, my dad's attitude, um, uh, again, one of his keys to success was that um, don't ever let them pigeonhole you, that he would say. And, um, so the important thing is to paint in your own way, like yourself, and to develop a style that's um, recognizable of your own style. And uh, then it'll be a Norm Saunders, as opposed to, oh, that guy who paints fish really well or something. Um, so he was in dread of uh, ever being um, only known for one thing, because then you can only be hired for that. And I said, we don't need any more fish paintings, so thanks a lot, pal. So, um, he tried to develop a, a, a special style, and um, the more I look at him in comparison to other painters, I can see that there is really, truly, if you, to maybe exaggerate it, to bring it across, it's like he's a cartoonist even more than a painter, um, because his drawing skills are uh, incredible, and he has a very strong style of drawing that's all his own. But the things he's able to squeeze into spaces, 
And um, so we've got the little villain in the corner. We've got the guy taking a big kind of like L shape in the middle of the whole canvas. These are like very powerful, almost cartoon-like compositions that aren't very realistic, actually. If you put real models in those positions, it would look a little different. And uh, if you think of uh, Earl Berge or um, um, Rudy Bilarski, that these people really look like they're people who've been photographed. They really look like they're uh, a human in a uh, photograph. And my father's saying he used models all the time, and he would photograph models too, but these look like a cartoon of a person um, more than um, giving you the impression that that's an actual photo of a man standing there. So that kind of distortion allowed him to uh, basically, if you think about it, like a lot of artists want to have a flamboyant signature when they sign their painting or something. And so you really need to find out what is your signature when you're drawing naturally. And you know, every human being has a, a signature, uh, oddly enough, which is identifiable by a signature analyst for you know, the FBI or something. And Dad developed a signature style of drawing. And uh, so his compositions are um, kind of uh, make-believe, basically. But he uses actual models and looks at them. I can't figure out why everyone thinks skeletons would stick together. <laughs> <laughs> and then we could get that. Gristle, gristle. Gristle on the outside, so they stick together. So the guy's fingers are all OK. It's weird. It's like this is an actual uh, breathing apparatus. Um, and this, again, harkens back to Dad's uh, uh, formative years with modern mechanics, where everything was like building an actual machine. And so uh, in 1950, this was a, an effective and serious form of uh, underwater breathing apparatus. <laughs> but now it just looks like uh, you know, some Martian uh, bell jar or something. This, this skeleton is held together too for some reason. He's got a wedding knife. Yeah, the knife is dripping in blood. Would he be signing things or? Yeah, he always was happy to sign everything. Um, they would sometimes prop it out, but not not intentionally or anything. But um, he would also uh, not sign a tremendous amount of stuff. Um, but at this point, uh, there was no longer the uh, competition between um, like the four or five different big publishers that he might have been working for before the war. So uh, there really wasn't an issue about assigning them for him. Wow, 
Because somehow this was the one that convinced me as a kid that my father wasn't just that uh, weird big guy, you know, but that he really was special somehow. And uh, a funny thing happened was these guys that, um, a big collector of uh, science fiction pulps was a graphic artist guy in New York called Woody Gelman. And he finally got hired by a bubblegum company that said, um, can you, you know, come up with some good ideas for us to, because we're making these baseball cards, can you make a little, what could work that would make some more money on these, get kids interested? So he was kind of like an idea guy, um, doing stuff with Pops Bubblegum. And uh, he loved this painting and loved uh, my father's work, and um, was a fan of my dad's in a sense. Um, and he asked some other guys that he had working for Tops if they would, um, uh, could get in touch with Norm Saunders and stuff. And uh, uh, so he started working for Tom's Bubblegum Company um, because of that painting. Um, I always thought that was kind of cool. The day later on, made Mars Attacks and all that stuff. Um, and it's kind of because of that painting. This is a very, very late, you know, uh, 58 uh, Western romances. And um, this is the, the, the photograph my father used uh, of him and my mom. And I'm in the, down there on the, his foot. <laughs> so that's me at four years old. And uh, I, um, I, I, I might have made it into the, uh, to this pulp. So this is the closest I personally get to being uh, in a pulp. There's a little boy down in the corner inside of the uh, of the uh, the uh, pioneers where they're getting off of the uh, this is like the mail order drive that shows up on the scene. Were you cropped out? Was that what? Were you cropped out? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this, you can see little kids in there, but I was basically um, with when they were both posing like this, nobody could babysit, so uh, I was wandering into the actual photographs. He's like, please, please let me in. Let me yeah, so it was fun. I actually did pose for my dad a lot. Um, every, everybody was, even all our neighbors had to pose for him and stuff. But that's my claim to fame right there. When the, uh, when the, the pulps were really on, um, uh, dad thought, well, okay, uh, Walter Baumhofer and Tommy Lovell were both making the Western art. And, um, you know, during those years um, of my childhood, my, my you know, formative years, the guys were all coming over to our house and uh, trying to game plan what the hell they're going to do to readjust to this uh, uh, terrifying world of, uh, you know, poverty, basically, and uh, obsolescence, is that the word? They were uh, no longer in demand at all. And so everyone had their own idea, like Ray Kinsler, uh, who had been, you know, a pen and ink guy, was saying, oh, we gotta start doing portraits, you know? And um, and Tommy Lovell was like, I, I think we should do uh, Western art, you know? Like, really good stuff. So Dad uh, started making Western art at the time, also to see if he could, you know, and these were like, they would take them to um, Kennedy Gallery in New York, and um, you know, they were trying their best, you know, to find some way to make a living. But Ray, this is what I was talking about. From that, we were talking about that um, target West thing. Yeah. 
this is what they did, and all of them were thinking that. And Chariaka did this. He made a very good living at it um, as a, as a uh, fine artist doing Western art. But uh, one of the other publishers, Martin Goodman, and um, I forget the guy that did Liberty. Who did Liberty, John? McFadden. McFadden, right. He, they both put out uh, good men's magazines, and so Dad got jobs doing those. And that uh, was okay, but he was hoping for something lucrative, you know. So again, these were like 150 bucks. So, and again, I'm posing this one. Um, <laughs> I'm a guard uh, to the far left. So this is like, I think, 1966 or something. So um, I'm uh, uh, 11 or 12 years old. And, uh, you know, I'm holding the mother's, you know, it was just fun. You know, I'd be posing for my dad. Uh, so these were uh, the men's magazine covers. So these are the men's magazine's interiors. And uh, he really put a lot of effort into these. And, and in a sense, I mean, they're some of his greatest masterpieces because he really was uh, very, very talented and had a lot of experience in the 60s and was doing these. And uh, so this is uh, his Mars Attacks cards, which uh, um, at the time, again, he was just getting um, uh, $1.25 an hour to do them. It was, they sold for about, I think, only about two or three months. And then they were off of the uh, counters. So at the time, it wasn't so earth-shattering or something, but he continued to work with Topps. And this is a Topps hold on set he did uh, for Batman. And that was a very popular TV show. And um, at this point, instead of just doing extra little weird things for the sports bubble gum, they began to realize at Topps that they could maybe make just non-sports cards. And so it began a kind of a experiment for about 10 years. They kept making um, different uh, non-sport cards. And uh, at the end of it, they were making Wacky Packs, which was a very popular set. Um, and I think they made um, 18 sets that my father worked for, about 44 images in each set from 1967 to 1979. And so this was some of the last work that he did was these um, um, uh, Wacky Packs for Top This is the, the, the last assignment he ever had. Um, some really nice guy, I guess Jeffrey O'Brien, I don't remember, but Dad thought he was really nice. And he called him up and said, you know, I want you to maybe do a, some kind of recreation or something. Of it. And Dad said, no, no, I got no idea. This is really good. And so I think this is 1980. This was done. Um, so uh, I my dad would be only 73 or something. But um, it's the last published piece he ever made. Then uh, basically dad, um, around that same time, 1980, uh, uh, he was contacted by Daniel Gobbett and um, Al Tonic and uh, John Gunson. And you guys all know who <laughs> and uh, they were saying, well, we're interested in this stuff called pulp, you know, and we wonder if you'd come out to our pulp con. And uh, it was absolutely like one of those uh, rejuvenation things for him because, um, you know, uh, he really was just, 
you know, we were very, very poor, and he was had spent uh, basically um, from coming back from the war up until uh, like 1980 when Polkan uh, adopted him on a, a steady decline. Uh, even though his talents and his creativity and his mental capacities were great, um, but he just the society itself wasn't uh, really didn't have any need for uh, his type of work. It had become very unpopular. I think one of the milestones for me that was so shocking to find out was in 1964, a Saturday Evening Post fired Norman Rockwell. And just said, go to hell. And uh, Norman Rockwell had nothing you know, to live for sort of without uh, the Saturday Evening Post. And uh, then in the next few years, I think they went bankrupt, and the, the new people that bought them up and started again with a smaller circulation hired him back, and so he did then later make more. But basically, the 64 on, it was just a, a, a real, really, um, dad would say it was like I had a business making buggy whips and they invented the automobile. Mm -hmm. It was just that obsolete what he did. And so he always said, well, uh, my whole life's work uh, sold for a nickel at newsstands, and then people just threw it out, and now it's all gone. It'll never, ever, ever be found again. It's completely, all my life's work is gone. And then suddenly, you guys uh, adopted him and brought him out and, and to Polkon, and it was an incredible experience for him. It was, as an artist, he just never met the public. He never interacted with anyone other than an art director. And, you know, he never taught publicly or anything. So he, it was a very much a, um, Kind of like a, the classical idea of an artist in a, in a garret somewhere, just working. And here there was a room full of kind, interested people, and it just blew him away. It was really absolutely the most meaningful thing to redeem uh, his life's work for him. And um, I had uh, become, at that, before that point, kind of devoted to trying to uh, catalog his work and not. Um, except the idea that his work could never be um, documented, that it was all just wasted. So I began, the, the, I actually happened to travel around a lot of the country, and so I would go to any, any town I was ever in, go to the bookstores, and buy the pulps. And um, anything I could find, uh, God forbid it wasn't by him, I would make a mistake, because he would, he would be so disappointed and say, you think I paint quick, you know? Larsky, I mean, And I said, oh, yeah, I just got that, you know, myself, myself, yeah. And uh, so I really couldn't make a mistake. And uh, But I collected a couple hundred um, here and there and stuff. But uh, I never felt, you know, that uh, it was really being treated with the kind of respect that I was hoping. And then, um, this wonderful guy, P.H. Schrader's, uh, who wrote uh, Paperback USA, um, interviewed my dad and uh, wrote an article for Dan Zimmer for Illustration Magazine. And he called me up and said, they don't pay anything at all, but um, it's a hell of a magazine. They just did the first issue, and uh, I really think they should do something on your dad. He's ready to do it, and he'll print it and make it look good if you can. You would be great if you could do something on your dad. So I couldn't, you know, I, I'm always trying to hope that things are going to turn out all right, but you never know. And But I, I did uh, the, this article for him, and 
I couldn't believe it. It came right out, and uh, it was out in circulation, and he sent out, you know, 2,000 copies, and uh, everybody gobbled them up. And so it was really like, for me, a, a, a whole new idea that the fandom thing has become um, so spectacular in my mind. And then afterwards, uh, Dan asked me, um, well, we don't know about lots of the pole artists, and, and, and you know, the information in most of the stuff is pretty inaccurate. Can you, who else did you know and stuff? So um, I did one on uh, Ralph DeSoto, and uh, it was fun to be able to, uh, you know, tell everybody what DeSoto was like. And uh, so then I just continued doing them, and uh, this one's on uh, J.W. Scott. And uh, again, just, uh, it was great to find out about these guys. In this case, it was very unusual that uh, his widow uh, is still alive, and, uh, but absolutely refused to talk to me or acknowledge that uh, he did anything other than just really nice Western art. So he's one of those guys that made the transition and, and made a good career as a Western artist, and, um, but you know, just refused that they're, you know, and completely ignore their pulp heritage. So they, they were, you know, it's great to be, to be able to give people credit where credit is due in my mind. One of the things I've always loved was all of these crazy, uh, violent, uh, sexual things that uh, J.W. Scott did that uh, are just classics. Everyone looks at it and goes, oh my God, it's so wild. And, um, but it bugged me that nobody knew what W stood for or they mixed him up with H.W. Scott. Right. And uh, so I just saw, well, I've got to find out who this guy is and, uh, and catalog the whole thing. Definitely my favorite uh, of all the uh, other pulp artists was Alan Anderson as a person. And uh, this is the issue that just came out. Uh, it's just great to really, uh, to give him the due that I always wanted to be able to give him. This is a photo to make it into the, the magazine. Uh, I think um, with the help of Steve Kennedy and stuff, we were able to put together incredible uh, hundreds and hundreds of photographs. But I just thought this was one of the cutest ones. And that's exactly how I remember him uh, coming over to our house and stuff when I was a kid. This is a funny guy, just uh, it was a model. He'd worked for my dad and uh, Cherryaka and a lot of people. <laughs> it was just great to, to run into him and get his view of it. And most people just, you know, would never think about the uh, the modeling side of uh, being a, in a pulp, that he was actually a star of so many different pulp magazines. It's just bizarre. I don't know if you anyone seen the article, but the two characters is by DeSoto. Uh, the one reading the Saturday Evening Post is Richard Lewis. Mm -hmm. The other one is Larry Meyer, who is this really kind of pretty good uh, actor model. And this is a funny medley of all the different artists, um, Baumhofer, DeSoto, my father, and uh, Chiriaka, all uh, you know, hamming it up for their different uh, action adventure movies. <laughs> and it's fun to, you know, to do the art. I did one on Chiriaka too, it's just great. And I thought I would show you, just as in closing, one of my paintings. So this is the kind of work I do. <laughs> and uh, I, I can tell you if you had me on a, a, a psychoanalyst couch that yes, um, I'm influenced by my dad, but uh, I don't know if you can see it at all. <laughs> but this is my kind of art that I do. 
And this is a painting I just did of a wolfman. It's a, it's a tombstone of a wolfman. And these are what I also do to make money. This is a sculpture I make. It's a giant fish floating in the water. And this is uh, another one, I think this is a, uh, at the airport in Borgia. And so these are like drawing sculptures that I made. And that is the end of that. Yeah. 
He asked him, why some tax people ever contact me? Uh, Tim Burton um, loves my father and uh, contacted us and asked us to come to the, uh, the, the premiere for the film and stuff. Um, uh, but uh, I was shocked that uh, they don't mention my father's name anywhere. And uh, Tim Burton mentions it in every breath he ever says when he talks to us about it. But I, I guess it's a um, bullshit uh, yeah, thing that they, they mention it. And like, or Topps, you know, wants to retain <laughs> utter ownership or whatever. So uh, they were probably dreaming about merchandising or something. But in any case, it, it pisses me off that, again, the guy got a dollar twenty-five an hour to do it, but he inspired everybody. And they made this film in 1997, and they wouldn't put his damn name. Do you take any rights to any footage? Oh yeah, sure. I've retained complete right to control over everything, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to invade walls. So this works. I'm afraid to talk to you about this subject. When they gave back his patents, what is Sutorowski giving back the rights to? I I can only speak from ignorance, and with uh, with a new president in the room, I dare not speak anything about it. We have one of the greatest copyright lawyers in the world. <laughs> but basically, I like the idea that uh, something called intellectual property uh, belongs to the person that creates it, and I love that. So simple, it's easy to understand, and. Uh, my father's work uh, was signed in its Norman Saunders and stuff, so it's, it's always Norman Saunders. You mentioned about popular saying, this is really, you own this, and we just sort of leased it from you. So oh, right. that should allow you to own it. <laughs> I don't know. They're all, they're all just petty pictures. I don't care about it. I just want to, we were going from a guy that was like weeping because no one on the planet Earth heard who he was, you know, in 1980. Uh, to, you know, now trying to argue, hey, I wonder if I should get a share of this money. So I'm just glad that it's out there. He's like, yeah, it's an amazing thing. Um, Art Spiegelman uh, started, was hired to work for Topps. He's the guy that uh, did Raw and uh, I guess works as a comic editor for the New Yorker now or something. He told that he's only 17 years old. Um, it was like in 1967, I think. Uh, Gee, Mr. Saunders, um, I know all about you. You're legendary. And um, dad just started bursting into tears. He'd never heard the concept of such a thing. And he came home and said, it's amazing. Um, I actually have a following. This is guy that uh, has heard of me. Cult of one. Cult of one. I should probably. In, in his work he did when he was in China. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. In his work he did in China. China. Did he actually do anything regarding the flying tiger? Yeah, well, they, was, they were flying out of uh, an air, uh, Takayaki Airport or something like that. It was like they took it over from the Japanese and they were using it as a flying tiger base. And he was there and illustrated that, those scenes, you know, what he saw. But he was just doing um, sort of a reportage, I guess it would be called, or something like that. Yeah. Um, but they were uh, very, very, very uh, important. You know, in in that theater to everybody, you know, with Merrill's Marauders also. Did you ever do any decorating like nose cone art? I can't hear you. Did you ever do any decorating like nose cone art or any of that? What kind of art? Nose cone art. Oh, um, yeah, he did. Um, yeah, he did. Um, I was surprised to see that. Um, uh, yeah, he did. <laughs> the. Uh, 
1381st uh, core of uh, petroleum uh, storage supply of the Army Corps of Engineers. To this day, has a patch that my father made. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. I got to cut it off. That's it. Thanks for your questions. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.